That's the mission of God. As a matter of fact, we recognize, even as we turn to Acts chapter 2, that the New Testament church is not a perfect church. I, I don't want you to read this story today and think, hey, it was perfect then, and why can't it be that today? No, the church then was filled with sinful, struggling people, but we are given an example as an inspiration and as information to remind us of what we are supposed to be about when it comes to the ministry of the church. And listen, this is so desperately important. It's so desperately important for the next generation. Because you see, so many young people are walking away from the church, leaving the church, not embracing the ministry of the church. And most of them are doing that because they look at the church and say the church is not living up to the ideals that it is promoting. And let's be very honest, there are a lot of middle-aged people who have jumped from church to church over the course of their life. And as they have jumped from church to church, they're looking for a commitment perhaps in others that they are not even finding in themselves. It reminds me of the old story of Groucho Marx who was a member of the Friars Club in Hollywood, and he submitted his resignation letter. And his resignation letter read like this, I don't want to belong to any club that would accept me as one of its members. <laughs> you know, he knew he wasn't living up to the ideals. And of course, that is the challenge for us. How do we as imperfect people come together and live together in unity and harmony in order to do what the perfect, most wonderful God of the universe calls us to do? Oh, it is a mystery and requires the mighty work of God to accomplish it. And God tells us to rally around those four things. The mission, the values, the strategy, and the vision that He has given to us. At Corpus, in our ministry, we see it all the time. Churches that are seeking to refocus and recenter themselves. And I know last week, Pastor Ken shared some challenging charts via his video that he shared with the church. And last week, he shared a challenging message to say, we can't just always keep doing what we've always done. There are moments in time when the church has to look back and recenter and refocus itself in its ministry. And of course, one of the reasons I want you to understand that that is necessary is it's not just about calling a pastor to lead in that work, as charismatic as that pastor may be, as skilled in persuasion as that pastor may be, as organizationally excellent as that pastor may be when it comes to executing the ministry of the church. What I would have you to understand is that far more than what a pastor can do by way of exerting influence upon the church, it is determined by the culture of the congregation what the future of that church is going to be. You see, it seems like a pretty powerful act to be behind the microphone and stand in front of this pulpit and deliver, thus says the Lord. And that is the responsibility of the pastor. But you do understand that the recipients of that message, mass as they are, varied as they are, embodying the beliefs that they do, adhering to the attitudes that have been built over years and decades of their life, character traits that are being embodied within the congregation, there is a lot less that a pastor can do and so much more that the collection of the congregation can do 
to help thrust the church forward towards its mission. And so I would say to you, yes, it's important who you call, but it may be even more important who you become if you are going to embody the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that the church periodically has to realign itself to the mission and the values and the strategy and the vision of God. And today we come to one of the most profound passages of Scripture about that. And I would ask you to take your Bible and stand with me. And as I read along, you follow along. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible today. Acts 2.42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with one and all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated this morning. There's the first summary statement of the book of Acts. Now, remember what's happened. The apostles are in the upper room. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They replaced the one apostle to take Judas' place as he had killed himself. The Spirit of God comes and descends upon the people. They begin to speak in tongues, other languages that were being discerned for the people who had come to Jerusalem for the feast and festival. They were hearing the glories of God declared in their own languages. They said, what is this that's happening? Peter stood up and preached the gospel in the firstborn. The first true gospel sermon on the other side of Jesus' resurrection is recorded in the Scripture. And we hear what that gospel message is out of the prophet of Joel's text. Peter tells us that you must repent and believe if you're going to follow after Jesus Christ and be saved. And the Bible says that 3,000 were saved that day. And then all of a sudden, this text ensues, and it tells us what the New Testament church valued. And what we find is that these core values anchored that early church and then guided them in all of their decision-making across the course of the rest of early church history recorded in the book of Acts. And there are ten anchors that are listed for us. Let's look at what they are. Notice number one. They devoted themselves to, and they devote themselves to four things to begin with. And you're going to hear them listed. They devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. Now, the word devoted tells us that there was an intense focus and effort. In other words, they weren't playing with this. It means they were searching the Scripture. They were earnest in their prayers. And you can see that in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. You can tell that these were a very seriously focused group of people related to the commands that the resurrected Christ had given to them. And they were focused first around the apostles' teaching, what we would call the New Testament message. It was Matthew 28, verse 20, teaching them everything that Christ had commanded us. In other words, it's what we carry with us today by way of the New Testament. And the New Testament, the teachings of Christ, become the mirror for us. They're held up in front of us to help us see who we are, what we value, and what we believe by way of our doctrines. 
It allows us to look at ourselves very intently. For this is the revelation of God. This is not something that mankind could come up with on our own. This is the revealed truth of God, His character, His eternal truth, His Son who is Savior, His gospel which is our saving message. And so this becomes the ultimate word of the Lord, which Paul would later say to us, he wants this word to richly dwell within you. The early church understood that the preaching and teaching of God's word was a high priority. And I would say to you, number one, the church was a learning church. I was so sad to hear of Claire who's on our staff, her father's passing. I believe Claire told me today he was in his 90s as I was hearing the story of his passing. What I was so encouraged by is that he was actively reading his Bible as he died. He was in the book of Job. He was reading the Word of God. You see, it doesn't matter how young or how old you are. If you're a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be learning from the truth of Scripture. The early church was a learning church. But not only a learning church, the early church was a united church. Look at the next phrase. And to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Now the word fellowship is the word koinonia here. And it talks about, it's used two ways in the New Testament. It talks about closeness in relationship or a willingness to give within relationship. So there's a relationship dimension to the Word and there's a generosity dimension to the Word. Now what's fascinating to me are the words that Luke chose not to use here. He did not choose the word that talks about small talk, dialeo. That is, hey, we're just going to chit-chat a little bit. You probably did that with some of your friends as you walked in the door here in church today. Nor did he choose a second word, homileo. The word homiletics comes from that. It's the idea of interacting with a group, kind of having a chat together with, with a group of people. Some people might call this party talk. We're just kind of having fun together in harmony with one another. Sueleo was another word that could have been chosen, and it's business talk. It's like the lawyers talking legal things, the accountants talking financial things, the teachers talking educational things, and, and, and so on. He didn't choose that word either because it's not business talk. What did he talk about? What did these people discuss? They talked about the sole work of God in the hearts and lives of people related to the spiritual activity of God in their life. You know, if that seems strange to you to have that type of revelation of yourself, that type of openness to others, that type of vulnerability with one another, I would say to you, you're probably missing a dimension of the koinonia that God is describing that His church is supposed to enjoy. And you see, soul talk carries you further than small talk does. Soul talk gets at the heart of the issue. I, I found a denomination in our evangelical Christian history that was really good at soul talk. They're called the Moravians. I don't know if you've heard of the Moravians or not. Today, certainly, they have slipped into more of a liberal posture as a denomination, but their founder, Nicholas Count Zinzendorf, was certainly a gospel teaching leader 
of that denomination. I visited their village not far from the city of Prague, just a little north of Prague, where the headquarters of the church is still located today. What they're known for, they're Moravian stars that oftentimes show up at Christmas time. They're Moravian food, which was often served at their love feast and their mission endeavors as they were the most intense missionary sending body in the history of the church. In more than 2,000 years, no church has given more of itself to the mission endeavors than the Moravian church did under Nicholas Zinzendorf. Why was that? Because they had soul talk that spurred one another along and encouraged one another in godly patterns of living, much like we see the relationship of the New Testament church members happening that united them around the work of the mission of the church. Notice the next thing they were devoted to, the third thing. They were a church that is a praying church, so a learning church, a united church, a praying church. They devoted themselves to prayers, to, literally to the prayers. It's the formal prayers. In other words, it's all the types of prayers. A lot of churches that have drifted inward have allowed their prayers to drift inward as well. And there's nothing wrong with our prayers for one another in our needs, for our hurts, for our pains, for our sufferings, for sickness, for loved ones. There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, the Bible encourages it. But it's only one dimension of our prayer life. The prayers includes the prayers for the mission-sending work of the church. You'll hear it again in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were at Antioch apostles, disciples, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. That's a pretty picturesque moment given what we have seen here today of laying on of hands for a servant inside the church. But notice the sending of our very best servants to fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill. It was Adrian Rogers, a famed Baptist pastor of a generation gone by, that said it this way at our Southern Baptist Convention one time, as we as Southern Baptists were wrestling over the future mission of our churches within our denomination. He said, quote, most Baptist churches spend more time praying dying saints out of heaven than they pray for lost souls to get to heaven. Do you see the balance he was trying to draw? He was saying we better be prayerful about what unites us in our mission and we re better be ready to go on the mission that God does assign us. A learning church, a united church, a praying church. Notice next, verse 43, an inspiring church. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. There's a presence of God that was, was present within the body. There's a sense of the nearness of God that God's hand could be easily identified. It says that they kept on feeling the awe of God. They kept repeatedly experiencing the presence of God. There were wonders. There was God's activity and fingerprints everywhere. There were signs 
All this is pointing to Jesus. It's not pointing to me. It's not pointing to anybody on the stage. It's not pointing to any pro. It's pointing to Jesus. As a matter of fact, John, Jesus' best friend on earth, when he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, he never mentions his name, and he writes his book based on the seven signs that Jesus is the Son of God so that we can be sure and certain that he is who he says he is. And the church ought to be that certain about the work of God in their midst and be giving Him praise and glory for it. You see, the reality is we can organize as much as we want. But in the end, until the Lord blows His Spirit into the sails of His church, the church will not do anything significant or substantial at all. But if the church will set its sails and plead with God to send the wind of His Spirit, they will see the work of God. And it will be like in the Corinthian church where they said, Surely God is among this people. And you see, when there is that presence of God, there is no holding back the work of God in that church. Think of verses 44 and 45. The church is to be a caring church. They were together and had everything in common. What did they do? They took time for one another and they cared for one another. If you want to go back and read some great statements, go back and read in chapter 1 of the book of Acts how often and repeated the church says that there was care, concern, and compassion one for another. They took time for one another, but they also took time for the needs. They, they saw the needs as a part of their mission. They met the needs. They condemned injustice and unrighteousness. They cared for widows and orphans. They provided dis, uh, aid when disaster struck. They fed the hungry. They rescued and assisted the endangered. They spoke for the disenfranchised. The Bible is very clear that the church had not lost its voice when the world needed the church's voice. You know, that's part of the challenge in our day and time is that a lot of churches have lost their voice in the moment when the world needs the church's voice the most. And the reason the church oftentimes has lost its voice is it has forgotten its mission or has misunderstood where it's supposed to go. Look at the next challenge. The church is to be a giving church. Verse 45 selling their possessions and goods they gave to one another as they had need. John understood this. He said, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity upon him, how can the love of God be in him? Let us not just word, love with words and tongue. Let us love with actions and with truth. But you see, part of what happens when the church is united in its mission and guided by its vision have you ever heard this phrase before? People give to vision. They do. I've seen it countless numbers of times. Just because you have a need doesn't mean that people are going to meet the need. But when you have a vision, I promise you there is a flood of people waiting to be a part of God's greater work than the work He is just doing through themselves. And they give generously, and they give sacrificially, even to the most mundane of things because they know that there is a mission and a vision that the church is moving towards. Notice this, that the church is a worshiping church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple until they were thrown out. And they broke bread in their home, so they met in the church, in the temple as they knew it, the church as they knew it, and they met house to house to worship the Lord. 
And what were they doing? They were enjoying the presence of God. They were looking upon the face of God. They were touching the eternal. They knew they were a part of something bigger. Paul would describe this to the Corinthian church. Surely God is among you. But he would go on to say in that instruction, worship God with songs and praises and prayers and teaching. And what you see is a really great balance of New Testament worship in the New Testament church. A balance between the formal and the informal. They didn't abandon temple worship until they were expelled and they held spontaneous home meetings where they praised. That They had glad and sincere hearts. There was joy and there was reverence. There was an overarching sense of the awe of God. I can say to you there is an eminence of God near and a transcendence of God high and holy that the early church understood. And one particular commentator on this passage said this, it is okay to be dignified, but it is unforgivable to be dull. Our joy should not produce irreverence, but our reverence should never be without celebration. Isn't that a great combination of things? Dignified, but not dull. Joyful, but not irreverent. That leads us to the eighth character trait. A learning church, united church, praying church, inspiring church, caring church, giving church, worshiping church, a joyful church with glad and sincere hearts praising God. Glad, the word rejoice. They were happy. And the emphasis on their happiness, they showed it. You've heard the face, how are you doing? Oh, I'm happy. Oh, you should tell your face, right? Old joke. Some of us don't show our joy and the Lord's pleasure and the happiness. You know, part of the effectiveness of the Philippian church was it was a holy, healthy, and happy church. They were sincere about it. The word sincere means to remove the rocks so that there is a smooth plain to walk upon. One word in the ancient Greek language means to not rub the cat in the wrong direction and make its hair stand up. If you ever rubbed a cat the wrong way and made its hair stand up and it just kind of bristles to get it all back in the same place. We shouldn't do that to one another in the church. The Bible says we should smooth out the way as we praise God. And that praising is joyful. And six times in the book of Acts, it repeats that. Acts 8, 8, 839, 1348, 1352, 1533, 1634. The Bible talks about the joy-filled church. I love these last two. Let's spend just a moment here and I'll close. And enjoying the favor of all people. The church is to be a winsome church. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Maybe the lay person, a deacon actually, I didn't know we were doing deacon ordination until after I'd already put my sermon together, but it sure seems appropriate now to have this as an illustration in here. One of the early deacons was Stephen. And his story is told in Acts chapter 6, in those early passages. And it says he was a man full of grace and full of power. Isn't that a strange combination? I mean, full of grace, gentle, gracious. No wonder he was chosen to work with the widows, the orphans, and those in need. He'll be gracious towards them and, and kind. He was even gracious towards his executioners. Lord, don't hold against them what it is that they're doing. Talk about a gracious man. But the Bible also says that he was full of power. 
he wasn't afraid to preach the truth. He wasn't afraid to stand up to the Sanhedrin. I mean, think earlier, the leading apostle Peter had, had folded in Caiaphas's presence in his house at the trial of Jesus and denied Jesus three times. But, but Philip stands up and he speaks the truth. And here he has the merging of the sweetness of God and the strength of God. What a winsome and powerful conversation, uh, combination. It is a wonderful thing to be gracious without being passive and to be powerful without being offensive. Do you hear that? Gracious without passivity and passive. The church was a winsome church because it was filled with people like Philip. Look, finally, and I think it's interesting that this is the final thing, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was an evangelizing church. It's listed last, but it's certainly not least. Here's what I would say. The effectiveness of their evangelism was because all of these other characteristics were present. Therefore, their witness had great power. Who are these people? What are these people doing? How do they do all that they do? And the Lord was adding daily to the number of those who were being saved. The church embodied the timeless eternal gospel and therefore it was evident and warm and a witness that drew others. These are the ten values of the early church. It's the culture of the church that I believe is put before us as an example of the church that God desires us to be. Now remember, none of us are perfect in the expression of this church. But what I would say is that throughout the rest of the Scripture, we see the churches that are represented in the epistles and in the stories of the book of Acts consistently working hard in the work of self-examination and refocusing to realign themselves. The church at Corinth was having to do a hard assessment. And let's be honest, when you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, it's some tough sledding. The church of Galatia had to do some self-reflection and they had to do some theological reflection. What is the real gospel? The church at Ephesus, the church that is the queen of the epistles, according to John Calvin, they lost their first love and became stale and cold. The church at Rome had to communicate its identity of its gospel beliefs through Paul's pen. The church at Philadelphia was the church with no condemnation, and yet Jesus said to that church, it's time for you to walk through the door that I have opened for you with a new moment of opportunity before you. You see, every church has to have a self-awareness about who it is, what it's doing, why it's doing it. And you either passively assemble that or intentionally develop that. Your vision team has been working to intentionally develop that. You can deal with the known or you can search out the unknown. You can deal with the actual or you can struggle over what you're aspiring to be. But it's hard work to do this work because if you haven't done this work often and regular, there's some clarifying and communicating and alignment that has to take place. And my sense is that that's the work, the important work, that Pastor Ken and your vision team has been leading you through the process to accomplish. Discovering what's unique about your church, helping members understand how to be aligned and unified, 
communicating those things that are most important, calling you as members into action related to that, informing your direction and vision, saying this is where we're going, these are the lanes we're going to operate in, having an intentional framework for everyone who's making decisions to make decisions in a similar and same direction, and a guide for the church when you face difficult times where you go back and say, these are the anchors for us. I want to put in front of you your vision team's newly developed values statement. There are seven of them in total, and let's just leave the first two up there for a few minutes in case you want to take a picture of them or see them again later. Prayer, fellowship, teaching, family, worship, generosity, and evangelism are what all seven will be comprised of. Now, here's the thing I would say to you. One, your team has worked very diligently. They've edited this over the course of six months. And quite honestly, this should not look odd or strange to you at all because they are very, very similar to the existing value statements that are in your bylaws, or I think you refer to it as your decorum. And so it's not foreign. Now, here's what I would say to you. Here's your great challenge with your value statements being slightly adjusted as you begin to march forward through this refocusing season into the future of where God is calling you as a church. You've got to have a forward orientation with your values. I said it this way to the Sunday school classes that I visited with today. A lot of churches make the mistake of letting their rearview mirror be bigger than the windshield that they're looking out of. And if you let your rearview mirror be bigger than the windshield that you're looking out of, I can promise you, you're going to bump into a lot of things unnecessarily. It's wonderful what's in your rearview mirror. I've come to value and appreciate many of those things. But there's only one thing that you can do with the past and the history of your church, and that is to build upon it. And one of the great dangers you're going to face is say, yes, we just reestablished our values. I will tell you, if that's all you do with your values, you will not have refocused. It's going to be important that you personalize those values, that you live them forward in personal expressions and for every ministry in the church. And let me just read them for you. Prayer. We value connecting with God in praise, thanksgiving, intercession, and petition. Do you see the prayers represented? Talk about a biblical statement as well as listening and responding in obedience. There's your great addition to say, God, as you call us forward in faith, we're going to take those steps of faith. You see, not only does God call you forward in faith as an individual, God calls you forward in faith with the redeemed bodies that you're a part of. If your family's a family of believers, He calls you to take steps of faith and obedience as a family. If you're a part of a church, He calls you to take steps of faith forward as a body of believers. And if you can't point to things that you're taking steps forward in, in obedience and in faith when it doesn't make sense, then let's be real, realistic. You're probably not obeying in faith like the Bible teaches us we must because the Bible says without faith we cannot please God. You have to act in faith. Fellowship. We value close and meaningful relationships with other believers. I think you enjoy that with one another as a body. The question is going to be, will you let new people be a part and build meaningful relationships with them as well? 
Teaching, we value receiving instruction from God's Word to grow in grace and knowledge toward spiritual maturity. There's a key concept in what you'll hear in our vision language. Family, we value families as God's design for raising up the next generation in healthy community. Worship, we value gathering together to glorify God and daily living our lives to honor Him. Generosity, we value giving ourselves and our resources to advance the kingdom. Evangelism, we value communicating about salvation, the salvation God graciously offers by faithfully sharing the gospel. Now one thing we did notice in that last one is it's a little more aspirational than it is actual. That we do not have a grassroots evangelistic expression across the church such as we are today. And so the goal then becomes to let these values become true attitudes that manifest themselves in real behaviors and eventually develop a character within the church that is undeniable. We call those the ABCs of values. The attitudes, the behaviors, and the character. I think Pastor Ken said it last week in his sermon, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And I think you have a clear path that is being portrayed before you, that's been prayed over and worked through, and as you wrestle with it. We're not here saying this is what the church has to be. We're here working with you to navigate in obedience where the Lord wants you to go. Let me close with this little personal story. One of my favorite things to do is to wander through old churches. I was waiting for a meeting one day here, and I wandered through your old church, through the maze. I did it with my wife, and I just had somebody to talk to as we were waiting for a meeting. We popped our head in this room and that room. We saw different things on the drawing boards. We saw different things hanging on the walls. I even looked in a closet or two. Did you know I climbed in your closets and just looked around a little bit? But don't worry, I've, I've done it to, to other churches too. As a matter of fact, um, I, I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the famed First Baptist Church Charlottesville, Virginia is a church that I have served on the staff of. It's 191 years old, founded in 1831. John Broadus was the famed pastor there. Lottie Moon was actually saved and baptized in that church. She went on a Sunday evening to make fun of John Broadus with a bunch of her friends from the women's college. It was kind of the opposite sex college for the University of Virginia because the University of Virginia at that time didn't let women come to school there. So they had the Virginia Women's College, and she came to make fun of him, and that night she gave her life to Christ, later was baptized in the church, and of course today is our famed Southern Baptist missionary. Pretty old church. They actually have a vault with all of their historical items. It's fascinating just to pilfer for days in that church. I grew up in First Baptist Church, Cleveland, Tennessee. It was ordained in that church, founded in 1833, 190 years old. And one of my favorite things to do was just to go up in the attic and just climb around and look. It was fascinating at what we chose to value because of what we chose to keep. I was licensed at First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, the church out of which W.A. Criswell, George W. Truitt, the founder of the cooperative program for Southern Baptists came out of that church, Dr. Truitt. 
And I went into the 13th floor, kind of the old storage area. It was an old bowling alley that the church had built many years ago. And I just wandered through there for hours upon end. My favorite church to visit, though, was the oldest church. It was 241 years old, founded in 1782, the first church in Tennessee, founded before Tennessee was even a state. It was North Carolina. It was a Presbyterian church, Big Spring Presbyterian church. And my grandfather was the longest serving clerk of the session in that church, so I could get the keys. And I'd go in that basement. My grandmother was the pianist. And I'd just, while they were cleaning the church or doing whatever, getting ready for Sunday services, I would just pilfer around in that church and look and see. Can I tell you, there's a lot to see from that vantage point, but here's what I would admonish you with from Scripture. There's a lot of things that we put in our rooms, like Lady Winchester put in the Winchester Mystery House. But there are only three things that belong in the upper room and everything else belongs in the lower room with a lesser priority associated with it. And I'll let you think on this. I won't try to convince you today, but I would ask you to think on it. That there are only three things that belong in the upper room if you're really going to be aligned with Jesus and what the Word of God says. Jesus belongs in the upper room. The Word of God belongs in the upper room. And the mission assignment that Jesus gave in every one of his Gospels, that has to live in the upper room. And there are lots of other things that can be in lower rooms. The people, the programs, the pastors, the preferences, the properties. We call these the five Ps of the lower room. All of those things can go in the lower room. But listen, when any of those things start creeping up into the upper room, can I tell you what you're beginning to do? You're beginning to lose the culture and the flavor of the New Testament church that lives out its mission with passion. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. As our musicians come to lead us in a time of closing song. I'm going to ask our two pastors to be here, Eric and Richard, here at the front just at the head of each one of these aisles. And I'm going to ask you to have some sort of response today. It may be to just where you are, declare, God, I want my life to be about the upper room. It may be about putting some things in the lower room. It may be the gospel of Jesus Christ is the focus today, that the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus that I've alluded to twice in my message, that you come face to face with that and trust in Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You repent of your sins. God, I'm sorry for my unbelief and my rebellion against you. And I believe in what Jesus has done for me, died and risen again so that I might have life eternal and life abundant. And by that simple declaration of a saving prayer, you can receive that gift. It may be a commitment to give generously. It may be a commitment to pray fervently. It may be to demonstrate a winsome persona with brothers and sisters in Christ and with those who are new who are coming to the church. But I will tell you this, I believe that in a place where the Word of God and the Spirit of God abide together, that there is something here that every single one of us can respond to what the Spirit of God is leading us to do. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Our pastors will be here at the front. And if you need to respond, I encourage you to do so. Either to come and pray 
come and share with the pastor, or just simply respond where you are to the Lord. I will tell you, sometimes God does some significant things in our life when we do respond with more than just standing where we are. God, have your way in your church. This is your church. You love it more than I do. You love it more than any individual person here does because you died for this church, for every member of this church. And you rose again and you instruct and you move and you work on behalf of every single one of us. So God, my one prayer today is that you would have your way in your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?